Father, we thank you for the changing of the seasons, but for your unchanging word, which keeps us steadfast in faith in the midst of tumultuous times. Lord, we pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path this morning as we continue our study of Hebrews. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just always have to ask this. First snow of the season. Show of hands. How many of you are... Not, if not excited about it, at least, you know, kind of, it makes you happy to see it. Anybody? Yeah. Okay. How many of you are like, now it starts? Yeah, I get it. Although, I'm, now I'm looking through things. Being a, an up north guy, or becoming more of an up north guy, I look through it a little bit differently. Matt's kind of taught me about this. Um, for our hunters, that's right, Matt? Like, it's really good if you're a hunter. Yeah. To get a snow right now, so I'm, if it sticks, I think it's going to stick, it looks like, uh, like it or not, so for a few days, but no, it's good, God is good all the time, and uh, we can see a little bit of sunshine today, so it's very lovely. Excited to dig into Hebrews 5 this morning, and we're going to be talking about, well, the job description that Jesus fills out, so um, as we do, I wanted to, to have this opening question of what's the most difficult job interview you've ever had? Whether you were the employee or whether you were the employer. What's the most difficult job interview you've ever had? I, I feel like I might have told this story recently. I was telling somebody about it, but when I was in college, I applied for um, to work at this bookstore in MSU. Did I tell you guys about this? In East Lansing? And uh, maybe it was in the Men's Guild. But um, and I thought, oh, this is a slam dunk. You get a job at a used bookstore. You get a deal on books. This will be, this will be fun. So I go in. I turn in my application. They're like, all right, right this way. Okay, cool. This is going really well. And they take, do you know this place? It's, uh, I forget what it's called, it, but it's still there. Yeah. yeah. Um, they take me into this back room, this dark, dusky old room. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm on CSI or something, right? They put you under the light. There's no windows. And they flop on the table like a five-page test. And they're like, you've got a half an hour. Good luck. And it was a test just covering literature, a, a, you know, mystery, science fiction, class, all this different stuff, asking very specific English grammar questions, all sorts of things. Like I was in an AP English test. I was like, what? And I did it, and I you know, failed miserably. Of course, I didn't get the job, but I thought, Wow, I can get minimum wage a lot more easily than this. <laughs> but that, just off the top of my head, it's one of the most challenging job interviews I've ever had. But anybody else have a story about a tough job interview? Yeah, Bill. Mine's the reverse. I was the interviewer. Yeah. IBM asked me to go to a, a university and interview whoever had signed up at a career day. Yeah. <clears throat> so they signed up, and you had 15 minutes to decide whether or not this wow. person might be a candidate. Yeah, and it, it was just, speed interviewing. Uh, it was horrible. I Could mean, you do it? Uh, I, well, I interviewed right. lots of people. Yeah. You know, you try within the 15 minutes to decipher, and it's just it's near impossible. Did the interviewees know that they had 15 minutes? Oh, yeah. to? Okay. Uh, it, it was, yeah, they would, it was a fire hose. Yeah, yeah. I should say so. <laughs> <laughs> Esther, do you have your hand up? Oh, yeah. Um, when I uh, interviewed for the position with the USDA, mm. I came in there with uh, 
when you're typing for a secretarial position. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, my boss asked me to do an algebra problem to see if I could think. Oh, really? Because anything you learned in school, you, you're not going to be able to use. You have to relearn everything in sure. the, according to the way the government does. Sure, right. And so, yeah. Okay, I'll do the algebra problem. Right. And I did ask him why the algebra problem. Yeah. And he told me. To yeah. Find out if you could think. All right. And I got the job. Okay, good. I could do algebra. Well, I thought I I know you. I think that you can think. So, <laughs> yeah, Leslie. I guess mine was the only one I was ever on. Okay. Uh, I was uh, applying for a job at hospital, and I was seventeen, so it was a work program uh -huh. at school. And you go in, and they have you take a typing test. Well, it was dictation, the old dictaphone machines for old people who know what those were. <laughs> and of course, it's uh, the medical records and stuff, and you're typing this out, and never having had any medical experience or anything, it was kind of hard. And I thought, well, I didn't get that job. Right. Because <laughs> you know, spelling words wrong and skipping over words we didn't know and stuff like that. <laughs> they could see, they could see that they had a real talent on their hands, in other words. Well, in our text today, in Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to see uh, the outlines of a kind of job description for our Lord as the great high priest. I invite you to turn there then to Hebrews chapter 5. As we'll see, number Roman numeral 2 on your handout, that in this passage, the preacher, the preacher of Hebrews, demonstrates how Jesus meets and exceeds the requirements for the position of great high priest. Okay? And this pa passage follows uh, what scholars call a chiastic structure. Okay? Here's your fancy words for today. But um, that comes from the Greek letter chi. Um, and so uh, chi is just your X, or key, right? Any of you in a fraternity, it was key, something or other, or, or chi what have you, so it's the X. And so in a chiastic structure, um, you kind of have two parts that are meeting in the middle. And so here you see kind of the structure of the passage. I've laid it out for you here. In the letters A, B, C, you see how they kind of match up. So first you have the function of the high priest in verse one, the person of the high priest in verses two and three, and then the appointment of the high priest in verse four. And then starting verses five and six, it turns to talk about Jesus and his appointment as great high priest. Verses seven and eight, the person of Jesus as great high priest, and then verses nine and 10, the function of Jesus as great high priest. This is a very common uh, structure within the scriptures, um, in the gospels, in the Old Testament, and elsewhere, and you don't necessarily know that that's happening in order to read and understand the passage, but it can help to highlight certain things. And in this case, this chiasm really highlights the comparisons and contrasts between the high priests of old and Jesus as the great high priest. And so the structure itself is kind of underscoring the, those differences and similarities as we will see in there. All right, so as we dig into it, any questions about that structure or chiasm or Greek letters in general? It's all Greek to me. It's all Greek to you, very good. All right, then let's uh, go ahead and read the, let's read the whole passage together because we're gonna be looking at both sides. So um, starting at verse one, we'll read up to verse 10 says this, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here ends our reading. Okay, so you can already sense, you can feel out that comparison and contrast. So I want to look at it according to that structure, these three parts. And we'll start with the middle part of the chiasm, the appointment of the high priest, the appointment of the high priest. So first of all, on the normal Old, uh, you know, Old Testament high priest side, the high priests of old did not arrogate that title to themselves, but they were called to the office by God. It says in verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, but there's a, one really significant, interesting story in the Old Testament, the story of Korah. You guys remember the story of Korah in the book of Numbers? Not Korah with a C, like Korah Chapin, but Korah, K-O-R-A-H. Uh, Korah is the one he is disputing along with others who has the right to be one of the priests of God. And they get into a big fight about it, and yada, 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 he ends up being swallowed in the earth. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know, you know how that is when you just get <laughs> swallowed up by the earth. Uh, but the nub of it is that Korah and his cadre were seeking to claim for themselves this role, this office, which would only be given by God. So it says in number 16, Moses said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him, the one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Now, from our New Testament perspective, of course, we have a, a different perspective on priesthood, right? Because now we are all part of the priesthood of the baptized. God chooses us for that office, if you will, in holy baptism. There's a distinction still being made with pastors, and we'll talk more about that later. But you see how when it came to the high priest, the main point that the preacher's trying to make is this is not a job that you could claim for yourself, Right? You actually didn't put in an application and say, hey, uh, I heard you got an opening as high priest. You know, what kind of benefits do you offer, right? It's like, well, uh, actually, you might die, and, but we'll pull you out. Don't worry. Um, so this is how it is for the high priests of old. Now, this is a point of similarity, of comparison, actually, with Jesus. So number two on your handout, likewise, Jesus was not, this is a quote from Tom Long, a self-appointed glory hound. I like that. But he was a high priest appointed by God. So it says in, in verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay. So in this way, Jesus is following in the train of the high priest of old. That he likewise is not saying, putting himself forward, but instead as being glorified by the Father. The Lord says in John 8, 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, 
my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. This raises a, a question of when did this happen? When did this appointing from the Father occur? And this, or this glorification, as he puts it here. I think there's a few different options, but just off the top of your head, what comes to mind as the moment when this kind of appointment would have happened for, for Jesus? Jesus' baptism. Okay, baptism. Very good. Because at his baptism, you have that voice from the Father saying, you are my son, right, in whom I am well pleased. Um, I think that's a really key moment vocationally. Does Jesus somehow become the son of God right then? He does not. But it very much has this feel like here he is being appointed by the Father. Are there any other moments in his life and ministry that you... Transfiguration. Transfiguration, similarly. Um, although I think those connections with baptism maybe just are underscoring the, at baptism. Always. Always? Okay, so he's just, he's had it from eternity. Certainly he has that status as the son of God from eternity. And so I think you could say it's, it's just always been there. Uh, yeah, Cor? Yeah, that eternity is what I would think because uh, God talked to Mary and said, yeah. Right. Yeah, so, okay, well, so there you have the, his uh, annunciation announces who he is also, that he is the, the Son of God. Yeah, Bob? He's Son of God, but here we're talking about his anointing as high priest. Right, right. Which is vocation. Exactly, yeah. And, and I think in his baptism, as he, he undergoes a baptism for sinners, right. that's when he intentionally connects himself with us in the waters yes. that are for sinners. Yes. And as we un unfold what it means to be high priest, that's very significant. Um, I, I do think that his baptism is the pivotal moment where he has this appointment vocationally as high priest. I mean, as Leslie said, it's absolutely the case that Jesus is the Son of God from eternity, co-equal with God the Father, all the things we confess in the Creed. But if the question is, when does he kind of undertake this appointment, this vocational role as high priest, I think baptism makes a lot of sense for that. You can also make an argument for um, his resurrection as well. Um, Romans 1 says he's declared to be the son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. And in um, Acts chapter 3, I think it is, um, Peter talks about how the father glorified Jesus by his resurrection. And in a sense, he, he then undertook that role. But I think especially at his baptism is where he really owns it. Yeah, Christine and then Bill. I think even the night in which he was betrayed because mm. the high priest were the only ones who could, there was only one high priest who could offer the ultimate sacrifice right. this year. And he was the only one who could fulfill the ultimate Ooh, sacrifice. Ooh, okay, I like that. So you guys follow what Christine's saying here? So there's one high priest who each year offers, remember the Day of Atonement, right? That, um, that great uh, sacrifice that would be offered. Of course, with... Um, Passover, it's not Day of Atonement, but there's that one um, sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice. And so it's like Jesus is now, there's this exchange of roles at his death also, where he is being seen as the true high priest. I like that. Yeah, Bill. Do the various, do various sects of Christianity debate that point? I mean, it seems like a pretty important point as to when Christ becomes anointed as the, the high priest of God. Do sure. they debate that, or is it pretty clear? Uh, I think that there's, there's debate, discussion about it in, in the history, especially how much you wrap into the question. Because 
Uh, there were teachings, there were heresies in the early church saying things like, at, one in particular called adoptionism, said specifically that at his baptism, Jesus became the son of God, right? And we're trying to bracket that out and say, he didn't become, uh, um, sorry, I'm gonna use the fancy word, ontologically, in other words, of his essence, his very being didn't suddenly become different at his baptism, but that it's a vocational thing. So it is something that's been discussed and debated, but it, is it inside baseball? Pretty much, yeah, for sure. But, it's a, but I think it's a significant point because of him being the high priest then underscores what he is able to do and why he, he does it as this perfect sacrifice. Yeah. Something important, well, the time of his being called high priest might be a conversation. In terms of being a sacrifice, it's a strange phenomenon that before the foundation of the earth, yeah, that's right. he was designated the land to be slain. That's right. So before it all started, the father and the son had already paid the price. That's exactly the price right. That would be paid. So he was the lamb slain from from the foundation of the from world. Before anything started. That's right. Yeah, Hans? Uh, is this a hard question? Um, high priests were supposed to be of the house of Aaron. Of yeah, right. So Aaron's Aaron's sons. Aaron's mm -hmm. sons. Was that still true at the time of Caiaphas? And were they still of that branch? Or was this something that was kind of like, oh we don't know anymore because of the uh, we were exiled and we don't have the right records. It's a great question. Well, I mean, this is why this is why it was so important that they kept those genealogies and so forth, right? To be able to trace things like that. Ah, I don't know. That's a that's a really interesting question. Presumably, they would at least make claim to that, whether or not they could actually validate. Just like today, there are still church bodies that claim ap what's called apostolic succession, that their bishops follow in the order of, of Peter. So, yeah, go ahead. I acknowledge the references especially in the New Testament, talking about, you know, Jesus um, and his, his, I guess, role in salvation, you know, before the world. But how do we square that with Genesis uh, chapter 6, where it says, um, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Right. How does that, I mean, wasn't it God's intention to make something good? Or was it? Are, are we saying here that there was a foreknowledge of the fall that was part of a plan? So why does it grieve his heart? Yeah. Oh, this. Uh, I mean, this is a, a big question. So, and did you guys hear what Matt asked? So, why does it grieve God's heart? Going back to Genesis chapter six, why? Why the flood? Like, why is that necessary? If God has, you know, He made creation, He made it good. His desire is that it would be good, presumably. Okay, Dave, you got it. <coughs> God's heart because he knew the only way for the him to redeem man would be mm. to lose his son. Mm. Good. D did you hear what Dave said? So it grieves God's heart because the only path forward is the path through of, of sacrifice. I think that that's definitely a big a big piece of this. Yeah, Chip? But back to Matt, so it, it sort of seems like that was plan B. Like plan A was let's, let's look at if this flood thing works. You know what I mean? Right. It didn't work. Right. Right. So that's where I, 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 I if that's where Matt was like going, but it seems like if it was before the foundation of the earth were, were formed, did God forget that and be like, oh, let's just flood everything and see what happens. Right. Let's kill everybody except for no one that's great. I guess in, in my mind, and maybe I missed the point for a long time, that it really wasn't 
does it have to be that Jesus, you know, saw this happening before it happened? Why, why do we have to seemingly put a timestamp on that? Could it not have been that God created something good, someone, an enemy, corrupted it, mm -hmm. and then it was Jesus who, again, was there before, mm -hmm. he, you know, the world, but he stepped in. Right. You know, he, he was there, and God chose him to fill that role. That's, that's kind of the way it's always been in my mind. Yeah, you know, I mean... Thinking that God and Jesus were there conspiring of the fall before that it happened... That, that never occurred to me. That well, because, and you brought up an important point, which is we look at this linearly, right? We can't help but think of it in terms of a timeline, whereas from God's perspective, he's outside of time. And so what might appear to us as like this happened and this happened and this happened, from God's perspective is all um, of a piece. Yeah, Bob? It's not a matter of a plan. It's a matter of a commitment. Okay. Uh -huh. The Father and the Son knew the price tag of creating a, a world good, but with free will at the time. Sure. And that he knew with free will we would. I mean, I don't know when Satan enters the picture. We're not allowed to know that. But it's the commitment of how deep his love is in creation. Sure. And already he knew the price tag. Right. At the same time, the flood independently is a statement of judgment. You're yep. going to always have these two realities. God right. hates sin. He's going to pay for it with his son, but he's also going to judge it. Right. And and he did. Right. I mean, there's that little verse in the middle of he's crying over his creation. says, I wish I'd never done it. They're all animal flesh, bizarre. But then he says, Noah found grace. And I think, well, it's his favor, but the Septuagint right. uses the word grace. Grace. Noah found grace. So he's starting all over with a grace line. Right. So you've got grace running through as judgment's going, and these two just never stop. And we're racing to the end when, when the one appointed lamb at the beginning of the earth will judge the nation. Right, that's right. So there is, there is judgment that comes along simultaneously. The great plan is redemption. Yes, yeah. Good. Okay, wow. Uh, this is great. I guess we've got the brains going. Okay, two more. Court and then Esther. Robots would have been easy, right? I don't know. It seems like we've been working on robots for a long time. <laughs> Still can't get it right. But, yeah, we'll take it. Yeah. Well, when I think about the flood, I think about, you know, baptism. And yes. Noah, uh, say, you know, the water. Right. You know, and, and, and um, once that turnaround, you know, of foreshadowing yes. that Jesus was going to save us. He's the ark. Yep, exactly. And through our baptism, we get in. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. So that's another angle to look at it, is that when we look at the flood, we can't divorce that also from the way that that's picked up in the New Testament as prefiguring and foreshadowing baptism, and that those are integrally connected. Um, it would probably be a stretch to say that that's why we have the flood, but certainly those go, go hand in hand too. So... You guys are raising the kind of deep theological questions that um, we ought to be asking as we study the scriptures. And Bill's got one more. Go ahead. I know you said no more, but it, it seems as though as Bob said, God at the outset, he put free will inside humanity. And he, I think he very quickly, within a short period of time, he realized, oops, that may have been a mistake. Well, I don't, <laughs> well, I don't want to say that. But let me finish. But right. He, he, he can't take it away. I mean, he could, but he, he, he refused at various opportunities. 
he's seeing, God is seeing, free will gets us into trouble all the time. Right. So it, there, I think the free will issue yeah. goes back to, to uh, uh, Matt's point. You know, well, if it was predetermined, well, free will was part of that. So anyway, the free will, you can't take away free will, mm -hmm. and as Court says, turn us into robots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why I think it's a really important point, as Bob said, that it's really about the price of admission, you know, for creation. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit know from, from the beginning this is, this is what it, it, may, it may cost. So, good. All right. We'll, we'll continue. No, not enough, but I think it'll continue to, uh, and continue to unfold. So, again, with the high priests of old, they followed in the order of Aaron, okay? Um, we, as, as Hans pointed out, too, as it says here. Um, so, 1 Chronicles 23 points this out. It's an important book of genealogies, significantly. It says, Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things, that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord, and minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. But then you have Jesus coming along. And Jesus, by contrast, the great and high priest and son of God, by contrast, he follows in the order of Melchizedek, tells us in verse 6. The full context of that verse from Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? What is the significance of this? I'm going to table that conversation for now because the preacher introduces it here and then he's going to circle back around with it in a couple of chapters. And I think he does that by design. Sufficient to say that right here, the important point is that Jesus is not just another priest on, after Aaron's line, but he is after this order of Melchizedek, which will signify the uh, eternal nature of his priesthood. Yeah, Hans. Is there a difference between the high priest and the great high priest? Well, Jesus is the, is the great high priest. Right. Yeah, like, you know, exactly. So it's just know, kind of... If he's is in the order of Melchizedek, right. what is the Melchizedek a great high priest? Well, I mean, this, as the preacher's putting it here, yeah, and yeah. utilizing that. So, um, so this is kind of the, the contrast and the sticking point. Both priests of old and Jesus is our great high priest, appointed by God, but appointed to different orders, as it were. All right, thus far the appointment of the high priest. Next, let's talk about the person of the high priest. And if you thought we had questions or controversies about the first part, wait until we get into this, guys. Uh, because this, this is some really deep theological waters, especially when you think about Jesus as the divine son of God. How do some of these things work, work out? All right, but first, number one under part three on your handout, the high priests of old were able to minister compassionately to God's people because they were ordinary human beings, right? He, that is the, the high priest, could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness, right? He is a fellow dude. He, as a, a fellow human being, he can understand what it's like to be a person. This is something that pastors continue to, ah, what's the right verb here? I mean, um, one of the things that people will tell me sometimes as a compliment, and I take it as a compliment, is they'll say, you're like a real person. Right? <laughs> like, I don't know what the alternative was, but thank you. Right? Uh, buddy said once, he said, I love that I can talk with you about both Jesus and Wayne Fonts. Anybody remember Wayne Fonts? He was, he, was the he was the Lions coach. I don't remember that. He, he was the Lions coach back in the day. 
But, um, you know, as pastors, right? I mean, I think when we're doing our job well, we're not just so, so spiritual, so removed from everyday realities that it's like, oh, you, norm- you people down here on earth, if only you were like me. Like, we're normal people too. It's helpful that I live in the house next door and you get to see all my junk in the front yard, right? And you're like, oh, okay, it's like me. Um, but uh, I, this was the case with the high priest. They were fellow mortals, ordinary people. Um, Jesus, likewise, we, we picked up on this last week, he has likewise joined himself to the entirety of human experience with the exception of one thing, which is what? No sin, right? So again, that reading from just above Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay. So Jesus shares that. He becomes not just fully God, but also fully man for us to sympathize with us, to come alongside us. And the high priests of old, number three, carried sacrifices for their own sins to the altar, as well as the sins of the people. So in Leviticus 9, Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So here we get into the really key point about Jesus as high priest. As he's bringing sacrifices, not for himself, he's bringing the true and final sacrifice of himself for the sake of all the rest of us. That's that connection to the baptism, that he dwells among sinners so that taking it onto himself, he's then able to offer himself up as that perfect sacrifice. But here's where it gets, um, I mean, this is just the the deep water. So I want to read again verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now I say that this is tricky because it really seems to, the preacher really seems to be putting a lot of emphasis here on the humanity of Jesus. We, I think, I mean, within the early church, there were these two kind of twin heresies, which were two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, there was the heresy of Arianism which said that Jesus was just a creature. He's the greatest creature of God, but he was not equal with God. Now, as Christians today, I would say, especially as Lutherans, we're like, nope, we know he's the son of God. He's fully God. That's it. Arianism, we repudiate it, right? But there was this other heresy that sprang up around similar uh, time frame known as docetism. And from the Greek word, which means to seem, and according to Docetism, it said, yeah, Jesus was, was fully God, but he wasn't fully man. He seemed like a human being, but he wasn't really. And that also was repudiated as a heresy, and rightly so, because Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. In my experience, and just speaking for myself, I get more uncomfortable with this kind of talk, which really emphasizes that humanity of Jesus, right? Like we emphasize his divinity, his godliness, like, okay, yeah, I'm all on board. But here, it's really stressing his humanity, him crying out to the Father, him learning obedience. I don't know, I put it to you guys. How does, what are your thoughts when you hear that? 
do you struggle with that? Or does that seem like, okay, no, this is appropriate, and maybe I, it, it comes more naturally in my thinking. Yeah, Chip, and then Hunt. Yeah, you know, back to what Kurt said about God didn't want robots. It also, when you see God as like, as Jesus is only God, then it's like, when soon as he was, you know, six years old, he knew exactly what the plan was going to be. He knew what was happening for breakfast and dinner, and he knew what happened next week. And this is kind of this, this, this robot. There's no really evolution of his thought, of his behavior, and everything. Not that he sinned, but that that like I believe that his that he, he was revealed throughout his life what his what his plan was. Right. The commitment was always there, but I don't think he knew when he was ten years old that he was going to die on a cross. Fully, what it was going to mean. Right. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Yeah, Hans. I was watching The Chosen the other night. As, as well you should. Uh, and uh, there, was, <clears throat> there was this preparation for the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting out there practicing his speech. Right. And, said, and I'm going, did, did, did he have to do that? Is a type of a, Needed a copy of my book, I guess. Uh, something. You <laughs> <laughs> should have. Yeah, really. I should be struck down right now. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I, that same thing struck me, and not just because of the preaching thing, but it is that, that side of like, yeah, okay, you just have to think through like, yeah, I mean, he's fully God, but he still has to think through like, all right, I'm going to workshop my words, like in the show, like he and Matt, he's running it by Matthew, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, even within, you have evidence, I think, of that, I think, within the Gospels themselves, because Jesus clearly tells us the same stories, but he tells them a little bit differently in different spots. Like, you know what, I really want to emphasize this. Next time. Yeah, man. I've struggled with this thought for a long time because of some of the newer writings that talk about angelomorphic Christology and debate about whether it was Jesus, you know, in the burning bush or something sure. like this in the Old Testament. To me, it kind of shortchanges the humanity of okay. Jesus. Because how could he be? He, my Jesus that was true man was born on a specific date and right, time. Right, right. And how could that had not having happened yet, how could that part exist? Right. You know, and was that not an integral part of, you know, fulfilling his role? Right. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. I, I, I don't like to see that short change. Short change. Good. So what Matt's referring to is um, there's kind of a, um, a, not a school of thought, but um, when we look at the Old Testament, um, there are different... Uh, characters and events, happenings, moments where it's like, is this Jesus showing up secretly ahead of time? Like you mentioned the burning bush or um, the angel of the Lord, the, the personage of the angel of the Lord. And many times theologians will point to that and say, here is the pre-incarnate Christ. That's the way it's often described, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, and here he is already showing up. I mean, it's more of a speculative kind of theological position. I think that there's a case to be made for it. But as Matt says, it's interesting to think through like, okay, but if, if all of that is the case and Jesus becomes incarnate, does he lose that memory or how could he still have this full humanity if he's like, well, I've, you know, I've got to draw back on my time in the burning bush or, or what have you. So, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Well, not to add fuel to the fire. By all means. <laughs> the burning bush. The burning bush, exactly. Throw gasoline on the burning bush. But when he ascended into heaven or in his glorified person, he transcended time and space. So was it the son of Mary who met Abraham? Okay, now, so, okay. 
I like this, though. This is good. So, okay. So, yes, it is Jesus in the burning bush, but it's not the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's the ascended Lord who has now... Any of you guys watch Lost, the show Lost? Like, now we're doing, like, the mind-bending time travel type... Multiverse. Multiverse, right. Uh, But, you know what? This is, again, is where the time stuff really factors into it so significantly. Because we want to look at it as this linear time, but if, if Christ... If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist outside of time, and Jesus, in his ascended personage, is outside of time and at the right hand of the Father, then he could absolutely. I mean, he says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, okay? Which is exactly the word that he says in you know, the burning bush. And so you know, this is some of the connections that we would, we would make. I don't have a, an easy answer for it. I just think it's just fascinating stuff to, to think through. Pray this, yeah. this he may strike me down and throw me out for what I do. He may. We'll just have a whole heap of bodies. Yeah. We'll let uh, Sarah will really have a fun time you know, we, cleaning up we, after church. We always see Jesus from our side. Mm-hmm. In other words, oh, here God is put, you know, da, 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 the whole story. What about if we look at it from God's side? I mean, Jesus was manifest conceivably many times throughout the Bible mm-hmm. before the New Testament, before he was born. But it could be that God said, okay, look, I gotta experience this thing full boat. Yeah. And I, I wanna I want to put my son down there to be totally human mm-hmm. and to see what the world is really mm-hmm. like. Now, you know, and, and again I may be stricken down for that, but from God's standpoint, it gave him the opportunity to just, you know, be totally human. Right. This is what it's like. Right. You know, I, I thought I knew what it's like when I created Adam. Sure. But it's kind of gotten off the rails. So it's right. <laughs> so it's like the father. You, uh, I'm bringing out all the all the references today. But Men in Black. You guys remember Men in Black? <laughs> and uh, theological references. Sorry. I know. Yeah. Um, but in Men in Black, or in the, it happens in The Incredibles too, right? There's that thing where like they put it up to your forehead and then zoom, and suddenly you forget all the stuff that you knew, right? And so, as you're talking about the father, it's about to send the son into the world, and he does it, zoop, like you've forgotten everything. Actually, I mean, to give a more of a highbrow reference, this was kind of Plato's perspective on um, humanity, that we have this immortal soul, and that when we are born, we, like, we, we knew everything we needed to know, and then we're born, and we lose all of it. Okay, it's just very traumatic being born as you guys remember. Um, and so education, as Plato put it, was the process of anamnesis or remembrance, that we're not really learning something new. We're remembering what we knew before we came into the world. Right? We lost it when we were born, and now we're recovering it. And so is there something like that going on with Jesus? Now we're just all over the place. But Anne, go ahead. No, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Sarah, yeah. That's, yes. We have somebody that can understand it. So, and that whole time thing, I, I, there was a speaker, Chip, you may remember, and I can't remember who it was at camp that talked about out of time.
time. Right. Because we can't think that way and how like everything is now yeah. to God. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who it was. Chad Foster. Chad Foster. Chad Chad Foster. Oh, maybe it was yeah. Yeah. Jewish perspective. Uh, Jew- yeah, the, the Hebraic and um, yeah, and thank you, Sarah, because you know we're getting into some really interesting questions. But still, the fundamental point that the preacher is trying to make here is that Jesus, as the great high priest, as the Son of God, sharing our flesh, is able to relate to us, that he is able to sympathize with us. Some of these other things can't help but be conjecture, right? There's stuff that we just, Scripture doesn't give us the answers that we might like to have. Um, but the fundamental point is that Jesus trusts in the Father all the way up to the point of death. And that moment in Gethsemane, and I think this is kind of both to Matt and and to Chip's point, is so important when you think about when Jesus cries out to the Father and and says, and and Chip brought this up to me after last week's study. We talked about that that little word if, you know, the, the, the devil needling him with that word if and then the religious leaders. But Jesus himself has those words on his lips. Remember in Gethsemane, he says, um, oh, help me. Um, if this cup can pass from me, yeah. Um, if, you, if you are willing. Um, can we do it another way, right? Is he just play acting there? Or is he genuinely experiencing it? If we are going to have a true Christology, that is understanding of who Jesus is as fully God and fully man, we have to say he's, he's really wrestling with that. He's, he's not just putting on a show like, okay, I know that they're listening in on this, so, oh, oh, if only I could do something else. No, he's really in it, and he means it wholeheartedly. Yeah, man. And that's exactly the part of that I tend to want to cling to, because yeah. I, if he's just like shape-shifting, appearing at different yeah. times, everything's preordained, it, it takes away this element of it truly was a trial, and right. there was a temptation that he, you know, people talk about free will. Right. Was the option he could have failed? Yeah, it was. He didn't fail. But he didn't fail exactly. And that was out of love. So that's where the depth of love comes in. Yes. You know. Yeah. So your point is well taken. That we don't want to give that short shrift and think that okay, it's all just kind of a formality. It's all just perfunctory as Jesus is going through it. That's not the case. Yeah, him. So I feel like what I at the bottom of it, what I struggle with, with his with his dual natures. Mm-hmm. 100% God and 100% man is, is really the transcending time and the not transcending time. Like he's, as Jesus, he's, li- he's living a linear life. Right. But as God, he's not. Right. How do, you, how do those fit in the same person? Creature. Yeah. <coughs> how no. do those fit? Yes. Yeah. Together. I, this, these are precisely the questions that. Um, the church fathers were wrestling with. And how many angels can dance on the head of Well, but, it's, <laughs> but it's, it matters, right? It matters because if Jesus isn't both fully God and fully man, he can't save us. He, he needs to be both those things fully. But how can he live a linear life? I love that. Um, but also be outside of time. I don't know. I'm just a humble pastor. Well, good. Okay, let's, yes. Yeah. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So and this is, the essence of faith is like, I don't know how this works, but I believe it. Okay, Bob, and then I'll give Matt one last word this, on that. This piece about he learned obedience through suffering, which to me is another way of saying he learned perfect faith. 
while he suffered. Right. And while we can talk about his humanity or his divinity, they pull together at this moment when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, exactly. And I believe that he, you know, oftentimes that's the title of a psalm, whether it's very possible he spoke that entire psalm from exactly. the cross and they just simply put the title in, in the encounter. But he goes on in that psalm saying, you did these great things for our fathers. You parted the seas, you rescued them, but I am a worm. Hmm. In other words, you did everything for everybody, and I know that, but you chose me at this moment to be rejected by you, and hmm. I get that. That's God talking to God. That's right. God the man talking to God. But he's in the throes of hell yeah. for you and me. Right. That's in time and that's in eternity. Yeah. They're, they're slam dunk together at that moment. Yeah. And I don't know if even God himself could have comprehended what he was going to have right. to go through. That's right. It's beautifully put. Thank you. Matt, did you want to? Um, it just, it, I always think of Adam in this case too as, as like, you know, and then it's a big thought, but like Jesus in a divine way there at the creation, seeing Adam suffer, you know, fail, essentially, and then Jesus brings himself back in that same role yeah. and doesn't fail. Right. You know, almost, it's like a do-over in a way. He's the, he's the second Adam. I mean, again, uh, I think I'm, I preached on this, but the, um, the fathers had a, a really beautiful word for this. It's, it's kind of connected to a biblical word, but it's the word recapitulation. And uh, like and we say a recap, this recap is the word short for recapitulation. It's a summing up. It's uh, uh, capitulation is the word for head. So it's um, bringing back under the same head. And so um, Irenaeus in particular would look at the story of Christ as he's recapitulating the history of, of time, the history of humanity, the history of Israel in himself. You know, scholars talk about Jesus being Israel reduced to one. And so it's like he's the second Adam. He's, he's the one who now is redoing it, in a sense, but getting it right. Yeah, Chip. You said that we need God to be fully God and we need Jesus to be fully God and fully human for him to save us. Right. I think we all understand why he needs to be fully God because that's like a superhero coming to save right. us. Right, right. Why does he have to be fully human? for him to redeem us. I, I think the key word to think of, why does he have to be fully human, is the word holy or holiness. So in God, in his holiness, is holy other and detached from humanity. There's plenty of other religions that have believed in a God who is completely separate from creation. In many ways, this is the uh, Muslim view of Allah, is that he is totally holy other, transcendent. If you don't also have that imminent side, then the, the holiness is going to be detached from us. Jesus, by being fully man, has now been able to create that bridge between heaven and earth, right? Um, by sharing our humanity from the inside out, he's able to link that, make that connection, right? Um, there's a little couplet from the, the poet Lucy Shaw. She says, you did the unthinkable. You made one bridge long enough, strong enough to link the unlinkable. That's what the incarnation is. Jesus links the unlinkable. And if he isn't fully man, he's not able to make that link. 
Is there also something to what Jesus is taming? Like he, we're his prize. Right. Like his his reward for all of this suffering is us. Yeah. That's what he loved. That's what he loved so much that he wanted was willing to do it all. That's exactly right. And that's I mean, the New Testament. You know? We're the spoils. Um, it's like, oh gosh, I hope that he also got a, you know, at least a paperweight or something. But um, a nice watch. Um, but that's, that's exactly right. And that's where the, the parable of the treasure in the field is just a beautiful encapsulation. That story is not primarily about how you and I need to sacrifice everything for God. It's the story of God finds a treasure hidden in the field, you and me. He sells all he has, sacrifices everything in order to make you and me his own. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has done. And that's why he goes to all of these, these great lengths. This has been an excellent conversation, and I'm gonna, we're going to stop it here and pick up next week. We'll continue talking about the high priestliness of our Lord and his function. Thank you guys for all of your great thoughts. I, I don't have a headache, but my brain is like expanded as a result. So thank you. Let's close with a word of prayer, though. Father, we bless you for, uh, for your wisdom that is beyond our knowing. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, Father. And so we thank you for um, bringing us before these things that humble us, remind us that you are in heaven, we are on earth, um, but that you would still call us and claim us, that we would be your prize. Lord, in the midst of all of our wrestling and all of these, these big questions, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, and that we would have the childlike trust to lean on you, to look to you, and to uh, give ourselves wholly unto you, knowing that you are trustworthy as our Abba, our Father, who gave all to make us his own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.